In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I said in my children's sermon, it is kind of an odd first miracle for Jesus, right? He doesn't save anyone's life in this story. Uh, he doesn't give anyone sight. doesn't make anyone's life really better. He just extends a party, right? Isn't that an odd first miracle? But I think we need to see the miracle through the lens of the whole Gospel of John. Right, so in the Gospel of John, Jesus' conversations always tend to be on two levels. Right, first, you have Jesus' conversation partners who speak on a very literal level. But then you always have Jesus who's speaking on a spiritual level. For example, you remember the famous story in John chapter 3. Jesus tells the teacher Nicodemus that he must be born again. And Nicodemus takes this literally, and he cannot understand how he is supposed to enter the womb a second time and be born again. He did not understand Jesus' spiritual meaning at all. We're considering John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus says, whoever drinks from the water he gives will never again be thirsty. And the woman asks for that water so she does not have to keep returning to the well to draw water for herself. Right? She misunderstands Jesus' spiritual meaning. Well, the same kind of misunderstanding is at play in the story of the wedding at Cana. So Mary, the mother of our Lord, is speaking to Jesus on a very literal level in this story. Mary, Jesus, and the disciples are at a wedding in the small town of Cana. Right, the people getting married are almost certainly related to Mary, or at least they're very close neighbors or friends. Right, these are people Mary must care about. And Mary becomes concerned by the fact that the wine has run out of the party. Right, she doesn't want the wedding host to be dishonored. It would be embarrassing for them to run out of wine. It would suggest that they didn't plan well, or perhaps they were too poor to supply enough wine for the guest. The party would be over, and people would leave unimpressed. And Mary doesn't want that to happen. Right? She doesn't want people she loves to be embarrassed. So she comes to Jesus and says, she hints at getting him to do something. She says, they have no wine. But she's speaking to Jesus on a literal level. But to understand Jesus' response, we have to understand that he responds on a spiritual level. In verse 3, he says, What concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Well, Jesus is making a connection for us to understand the rest of the story. Right? He's connecting wine and the lack of it here to his hour, which has not yet come. And so we have to read it spiritually. We know how wine will be used later in the Gospels. Right? Jesus will say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me. And in the other Gospels will say, this cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. In the Gospels, wine is connected to the blood of Christ. And this helps us to understand Jesus' point here. His hour, like he says here, his hour is his crucifixion and resurrection. Right, before the Last Supper in John chapter 13, the Gospel says Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. In other words, then, Jesus is going to give people wine, but it's not the literal wine Mary is speaking of here. 
Instead, Jesus is going to give them the wine that is his blood, the forgiveness of sins and the newness of life. And so understanding that there are two levels at play will help us bring out the big idea of the miracle of changing water into wine at the wedding. And the big idea is this. The big idea of the story is that Jesus' death and resurrection bring us a true abundance of life. In Jesus' death and resurrection, there is an abundance of extravagance. There is transformation. There are new possibilities. And this is the important thing to understand. Right? Jesus isn't just giving the people wine to get drunk and party on a literal level. He is doing it to reveal his glory. And his glory is most perfectly revealed to us at the cross. And we want to take in these implications. What we were given and brought into through the death and resurrection of Christ is like a party. Right? Our salvation is like a wedding feast. It's a celebration. It's abundance. In John 1.16, we're told that in Jesus we have all received grace upon grace. Grace that overflows. And so the literal wine of our gospel story is a picture of what God gives us spiritually. And now, as we read the story, we should notice two things about the wine. First, this is not cheap stuff, right? This is no two-buck chuck from the bottom shelf. The steward even scolds the groom. Why did you save this good wine for when the guests are already drunk and can't enjoy it? You have to give the good stuff first, and then the cheap stuff when they're too drunk to notice. Right? Jesus creates the best wine. It's wine that's suitable for celebration and for feasting. Spiritually, this wine is the life Christ gives to us through his death and resurrection. Right? And Christ says he has come to give us abundant life. Now don't hear that as abundant life and things materially rich. That's not what Jesus means. Instead, he means he has given us life that is defined by the forgiveness of our sins. He has given us life that is good. He has given us a source of joy and peace. Of all the things that really matter and really last in creation, he's given that to us. We also want to notice, with the wine, just how much of it there is. So the story tells us there were six stone jars filled with 30 gallons of water that became wine. That's a lot of wine. If you do the conversion from gallons to milliliters, you would find out that this is over 900 bottles of wine. That's 900 bottles of wine on top of the fact that the guests have already drunk all the wine that was already there. And this is in a small village of Cana, a small family wedding. It's excessive. It's abundant. It's overflowing. But that's the point. Like the wine, the grace that God gives us through Jesus Christ is abundant. It covers us over and over beyond our imagination. When we receive the grace of God, our life becomes defined not by the sinful decisions of our past, but the eternal life we now participate in. We, in Christ, overflow with life. It's endless. It goes on and on. And like the wine at Cana, God's grace can appear to us to be almost excessive and abundant. Right? You mean that Christ has died for every sinner? Yes. Christ has died for murderers and thieves and scoundrels and the scum of the earth. These are all loved by God? Yes. 
You mean the worst, most shameful thing I have ever done will be forgiven by God when I repent? Yes, but that's the truth. Right? God says, simply trust me. God says, trust that he has taken care of us through his son. He has forgiven us and made us new creatures. And so his grace is enough. But it's more than enough. It's excessive. It's overflowing. It's abundant. It's rich. And God reveals his glory to us in that abundant mercy. By his gifts to us, we know him. Right? And this is why Christ promise, promises to come to us in Holy Communion. He wants us to know his abundant grace. He wants us to trust that his grace is plentiful and overflowing. He wants us to know that his grace will never run out, that it will always do the work. And so when the world runs out of goodness, you can turn to him. When you can find no goodness in yourself, you can turn to him. Because in him, grace overflows. It's abundant. It's full of life. And this is what happens when we receive him at communion. We trust in his promises, and he invites us to celebrate with him. The wine that Christ offers to us is that. It's a celebration of the abundance of his grace that covers us over and over and gives us life unending. Amen.